Welcome to Forest Fires. My name is John Clark. This is episode four of our series, and in this episode, we're going to be dealing with the concepts of spirituality. In my experience in the 12-step rooms and in my own early recovery, I struggled with the concepts of a higher power. A lot of that had to do with my own personal upbringing. I grew up in a devout Southern Baptist home, and it was very much a hellfire and brimstone religious raising. We didn't have a whole lot of tolerance for other people, and there wasn't a lot of tolerance that was taught. As a result of that, as I grew older, I began to see that a lot of people in my church and in my religious upbringing were very good at quoting the spirituality that was contained in the Bible, but what they weren't good at doing was living it. As a result, the older that I got, the farther I pulled myself away from the church because I did not approve of or appreciate the hypocrisy. Many years later, when I entered into the recovery rooms, I found myself presented with the 12 steps themselves, which talk about a higher power. The AA Big Book specifically talks about God, and I found myself immediately pushing back from that. What I've learned working in the recovery field is that it's not just me. A number of people struggle with the same concept, and that's the basis of this conversation today. Why the controversy related to the higher power? Because anywhere you go, I assure you that you can find somebody who objects to the 12-step programs because they believe that it is a God-centric program. Today, as I talked about in the last episode, I have somebody that's joining us on our show. It's Chad W. Chad uh, is a part of the recovery community, works in the recovery field. But he comes at the conversation of spirituality or the discussion of spirituality from a different place than me. And that interesting, that unique perspective, I think, is important. So, Chad, in your experience, why the controversy relative to God? Or better yet, maybe not why the controversy relative to God, but... How do you see it? Why the resistance? Why the resistance? Why the resistance to it? Um, well, first off, my name's Chad W. I'm an addict. I'm grateful to be here. Thanks for asking me to do this, John. Um, you know, I think that through our addiction, most of us had to learn to rely on ourselves and our instincts, and we just pushed everything else out. You know, addiction is an extremely lonely uh, place of, of just like continuing survival on a daily basis and um we kind of give up hope along the way you know we give up um little pieces of ourselves throughout our course you know throughout our lives in addiction uh and, and even if we are raised with some sort of belief or raised with you know some sort of dogma in our life i feel like a lot of us lose that along the way just in bits and pieces and um, i think for me that actually makes a lot of sense and goes along with my story because as you and i have talked as opposed to the concept of spirituality and religion as I was, I don't know that I ever got to a point where I didn't believe that there was something in the universe. But what I struggled with, it wasn't the struggle to believe in something. It was a struggle to believe that something in the universe could believe in me. That something in the universe cared about me. Exactly. Yeah. That I could truly be seen as a 
redeemable figure. Mm-hmm. So I'll say that uh, growing up, growing up in my household, I had a mother that went to to church. Uh, she was raised in Germany and went to Catholic churches and stuff like that. When she came to America, uh, she found a non-denominational church that was very progressive. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the pastor at, at my church growing up was, was just one of those people that, that preached love but read the Bible. And it was a very open and welcoming church. Like, they welcomed people of different sexual orientations. They welcomed people of all nations and origins. And so I got in my childhood from one of my parents... Uh, the, this 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 idea of uh, God is love and God is uh, God wants you to treat other people with love and compassion, right? And that's completely contrary to kind of the version of God that I got. Exactly. The version of God that I got was, as I said, hellfire and brimstone. Mm-hmm. That God was a vengeful God. He was a jealous God. Mm-hmm. I remember we our church was located across the street from a Church of Christ church. Southern Baptist on one side of the road, Church of Christ on the other. And we were under the impression that the people on the other side of the road were going to hell because they didn't believe what we believed. Mm -hmm. But I remember being about 12 years old and asking a Sunday school teacher, don't we worship the same God? And they didn't answer my question, but they told my parents that they needed to work on me a little Mm -hmm. bit. And that kind of... I mean, for lack of a better phrase, it turned me off. Mm-hmm. Because if I wasn't able to ask questions, how am I supposed to get answers? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so growing up w- with one parent taking me to church, my dad, uh, who I won't necessarily call an atheist, but maybe an agnostic, is some- was somebody that didn't... Uh, you could only drag my dad to church once or twice a year, and it was usually for Easter or Christmas, and that was the only time you could get my dad to go to church. Uh, now, the flip side of that was if we happened to visit Germany, uh, my dad would go into all of these Catholic cathedrals and take pictures because they're so beautifully made. In the U.S., you don't have as many of those mm-hmm. types of churches, but my dad always taught me that uh, you know that science was... A, a way to to understand the world around me and to look at things logically and uh you know just his sort of ap- I won't say that my dad was an atheist but he was sort of apathetic towards uh any type of spiritual belief you know um and, and I saw that too so I kind of got both sides of the street growing up and my parents were always very like you know they they wanted me to to develop my own beliefs or they, they were like you know, you don't have to do what we do, you know. And so I grew up questioning everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I questioned re- religion. I questioned dogma. I questioned uh, I questioned rules. Like, whenever people told me that this was what I had to do, my question was always why. Now, when you talk about dogma for you, I mean, I know dogma has a definition, but for you, what is that dogma? What does it represent to you? Well, to me, dogma is kind of the rules that go along with a religion, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, Judeo-Christianity has sort of its own dogma rules, you know. Um, so for me, it, it, it's sort of the nuances of each different type of, of religion. So each religion has its own dogma, too. And you know beyond I mean? even just the religions, each sect of the religion Mm -hmm. like yeah as i said grew up southern baptist 
but that is a Judeo-Christian subsect of the Christianity. Mm-hmm. And the Southern Baptists have their rules. The Church of Christ have their rules. The Presbyterians, the Methodists, everybody seems to have their own playbook. Yeah. And the difficulty that I had growing up was that question that I asked. Mm-hmm. Aren't we all supposed to be worshiping the same God? Mm-hmm. And the different playground rules, mm-hmm. the different rules that were set out that these people can dance and these people can't Damn. dance. Mm-hmm. These people can eat pork. These people can't mm-hmm. eat pork. These people can eat shellfish and these people can't. Mm-hmm. That didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So while our journeys are somewhat different, I found myself being a bit of a a, a questioner as well, mm-hmm. where I was questioning the rules. The and But I was not encouraged to ask questions. I was told that faith was the ability to take things without getting the answers. And I I began to see faith as a cop-out. Mm-hmm. That faith was for weak-minded people who weren't brave enough to ask the hard questions. Now, obviously, where I am today in my recovery versus where I was during that journey are different. But I think it's important because I, like you... As I grew older, got more educated, I began to put my faith more in science and in concrete facts. Well, and and throughout the throughout the history of mankind, we have used uh, the God equation to fill in the blanks of what we don't understand. So you know, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, when we didn't understand viral science, like you know, if you got a disease, it was because God willed it. You know, we didn't understand how germs spread. We didn't understand the science of things. And so we've always used God as a sort of buffer to explain away what we don't understand or can't comprehend at the moment. So I've always felt that, you know, relying on that in my, you know, before I got into recovery, I've always felt that like relying on that was sort of a cop out. Like I need to take responsibility for my life and, and do you know, live my life the way I want to, regardless of what anybody says. And that was what I did for a long time. And then when I, when I finally got to the point of surrender in my addiction, I realized that I couldn't rely on my own decision-making skills. And that actually brings up a two interesting points relative to what you were saying. One, and in the 12 steps, this is you know, step two came to believe that there was a power greater than you that could restore you to sanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we talk about relying on a power greater than ourselves, one of the reluctances that I had and the reluctance that I see from a lot of other people is when I start relying on somebody else consistently in my addiction i was let down Mm -hmm. every time i relied on someone else i was let down and moreover every time somebody relied on me they got let Mm -hmm. down so i walk into a room full of people that say i need to rely on something that i can't see feel or touch Mm -hmm. and it was disheartening to me because i thought when i was walking into this room they were going to be able to provide me with answers Mm -hmm. and instead Within the first day, I'm presented with faith again. Mm-hmm. And, and I have more questions. And I had more questions. <laughs> more questions. Yeah. So you and I come to spirituality from a different place. Mm-hmm. Kind of explain, if you will, mm-hmm. 
your spiritual progression, your journey, okay. how you got here. So, um, I mean, how I came to recovery is just like almost everyone else's story. I started using, you know, drugs and alcohol at an early age. I continued to use until I was unable to do that anymore. You know, until I was beaten down. Uh, I caught my first felony at the age of 19. I caught my last one at the age of 38. They span the gambit from simple possession to second degree attempted murder. Um, so when I say that addiction has put me through the ringer, it's, it's not an understatement. You know, the last time I was in jail, uh, I went up, I, I went up with a, uh, I went up against an eight to 30 year sentence with a public defender. And the only reason that I'm on this podcast sitting with you is because of a series of miracles that happened from, from that point on in my life. And looking back, like there was a series of miracles that got me there because there were so many times in my active addiction that I should have died, that I should have overdosed, that, that the car wreck should have killed me, that I should have been killed by, you know, somebody I was buying drugs off of or, or, you know, any number of things. And I, I see that now, but up until that point in my life, when I started to really recognize the miracles in my life for what they were and, and acknowledge them, I couldn't see those kinds of things. So let me say that, like, I, I got to these rooms out of pure desperation. Like, you know, it was either get locked up for the rest of my life or die in using, you know. And so when I came into the rooms, I just, I was, I had pretty much thrown my hands up and I was like, I will do whatever you people tell me to do, because obviously y'all have something that I, I don't have. And so, you know, the first step was by that time, the first step was really easy to me. Now I'd been introduced to the first step many, many times before I was court ordered to go to my first meeting at the age of 19. And I knew that I was, I knew I had a problem with drugs and alcohol. I knew I was a, was an addict. However, my life was not unmanageable. Mm. And so I, therefore I was, I was sentenced for lack of a better word to try to manage my life as best I could, because I was not ready to admit that my life was unmanageable and that I couldn't manage it. And that's the two parts of step one that I think we oftentimes gloss over, Mm -hmm. which is we admit that our life is, that we admit that we're powerless over the substance, whatever that substance may be, or for that matter, powerless over anything outside of our control. Mm -hmm and that our life is unmanageable. I, like you, I had no question that I was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. I had decided that probably 10 years prior to actually mm-hmm. getting sober. Yeah. So at probably 25 to 28, at least the thought was rolling through my brain of, do I have a problem? Is this something that mm-hmm. I can stop? But I had money in the bank. Mm-hmm. I had a good career. I had a wife, I had kids. So anybody that would look at me and say that my life was unmanageable, I would point to my stuff. Yeah. I would mm-hmm. say, look, nobody yeah. that has an unmanageable life has this much yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm. I have custom-made suits. Yeah. That's clearly manageable. Yeah. But unmanageability, for me, in the end, unmanageability it's came to me like... It's not always exterior. It's not always exterior, but... I had to wait till I had all the exterior evidence on my own to realize that it was unmanageable. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, when I, when I finally surrendered, when I finally understood the first step and was willing to move into and work on a second step, I was confronted with another set of problems. And those set of problems were, you know, what the second step tells me right off the bat is, 
I am now going to begin a journey to change my beliefs mm -hmm. because the beliefs that I have held up until this point no longer work for me. You know, there is something in my belief system that keeps me in addiction, right? And so, you know, for me, one of the first things that my sponsor explained to me was, A, I need to change my beliefs, and B, I'm insane. <laughs> now, when you say change your beliefs, and this is something that I kind of want to touch on, mm -hmm. there's this perception, particularly for people that aren't familiar with the 12-step rooms, regardless of what your fellowship is, is that spirituality, or maybe not spirituality, specifically religiosity and or a God-centric belief system is kind of shoved down your throat. Mm -hmm. And that's not the experience that I had. Yeah. And I, like you, was I was faced with the reality that my beliefs weren't sufficient anymore. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily that they were wrong, but they were yeah. limited. Yeah. And when I was approached with step two, I thought, oh, they're going to start preaching to me. But that's not really what I experienced. Yeah, and, and for me, it wasn't that my belief systems were wrong. It was that my belief systems were based in negativity, mm. right? So, so for me, when I came into the rooms, I believed that most people were greedy. I believed that the world was a hostile place that was trying to make me uh, unhappy. I believed that uh, I was not deserving of love. I believed that I was not deserving of uh of forgiveness like I had a very very negative mindset towards society in general and the world as a whole and that's very similar to me is I had even though I had grown up in it wasn't a, an abusive household there wasn't I mean my mother is amazing she's probably the closest thing to a saint that I've ever met and she's what I want to be when I grow up but my dad was one of these folks who never that there was never any amount of good that you can do. It was never good enough. There was not a whole lot of encouragement that went along with it. And so I can't sit here and say that I came from a horribly abusive background or anything like that, nor do I intend to. But over the years of growing up, I didn't believe in the concept of unconditional love. I thought everybody had a condition that they would love me just so long as I was able to provide for them. But as soon as my ability to provide for them left, mm -hmm. so then did their love. Mm -hmm. When I finally got to the, and I worked in politics, and when I was in politics, I was just surrounded by the dirtiest, ugliest stuff I've ever seen. And then I got to the criminal courts where I was working at that time as an attorney. And I was surrounded by the worst of the worst every single day. And I began to see the world through that very mm -hmm. limited perspective. Mm -hmm. And I began to see, just like you, that everybody in the world was out to get something from somebody. Mm -hmm. That there was no unconditional care or love for anybody. And that at their root, people were flawed mm -hmm. and bitter and dangerous creatures. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I began to impute that same negativity on everybody, mm -hmm. including myself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I found the same thing in life that was that, that was that my negative belief systems bred more negativity into my life. And so one of the things that I had to start doing when I when I started working a second step and this wasn't from my sponsor's direction. This was just something that I sort of did naturally was I started making a list of uh, 
of what I believed in, mm. right? And, and what I saw from making that list was that most of my beliefs were negative. And so I, I had come to understand through working, you know, through answering the questions in, in, the, in the step working guide that I needed to start finding ways to turn my beliefs from negativity to positivity. And so I started trying to make a list of things that I believed in that were good. Right. And like, I, I remember some of the things on my list, it's been seven years now, but I made I remember some of the things on my list, like deep down, I believe all people want to be loved. Right. Um, deep down, I believe that people think that what they are doing is right. You know, um, I, I had to start making a list of, of things that, that I could tangibly hold on to. Uh, that would start pointing me in the direction of love instead of in fear. And, you know, one of the things that being a person that kind of identified as atheist or agnostic, like I had heard all my life that God is love, right? And so I figured, well, I guess I'll use love, right? Um, and I remember, like, I will never forget, there was a part, a point in my recovery when I probably had six months clean or so, I was actively working on my second step, um, and it, it, it always sounds corny, but I tell the same story all the time. I was scrolling through Facebook and a dog rescue video came on. And in this dog rescue video, it was filmed in another country and it was in this huge, uh, uh, junkyard, a car junkyard. And this dog had been loose in there for months. Nobody could catch it. It was mean. It was ferocious. And so they sent a team of like seven or eight people in with the little lassos and, and to, to try and trap this dog. The first five minutes of the video is clips that they shot over an hour of them chasing this dog and finally getting it cornered. But it was like the beginning of the Benny Hill show. You know, with these people chasing this dog around and it just skirting away from them, getting away. And it was, it was almost like a blooper reel, you know. Well, they finally get this dog uh trapped under an old turned over 18 wheeler and the dog has nowhere to go and he's biting and gnashing at people and they finally get under there and they get a noose around its neck and when they do that it just flips out uh thrashing all over the place until finally this dog realizes i'm caught and and you there's a moment in which you see the look of desperation in this dog's eyes and, and, and the, the comp you see its psyche break. And it was at that moment that I felt something because I had felt that same way before. And it was when I was on that bottom bunk in Blackwood detention facility. And they had handed me that letter earlier that day that said, you're being charged with second degree attempted murder. This carries a, a, a charge of eight to 30 years. And when I saw that in black and white, there was that, that point of break in my psyche where where i was defeated and i knew it it's a point of exhaustion yeah where mm -hmm. for and i think uh, many of us can relate to to that i know i can where using the dog analogy you've been mm -hmm. chasing your tail for a very long time yeah. and we've been avoiding consequences we've been avoiding problems we've been avoiding things and to our point and alcoholics and addicts are fascinating we are somehow capable of avoiding those things for a very long time. Yeah, we're crafty. We're very crafty. <laughs> but then all of a sudden, the run is gone. Yeah. And you're surrounded on all sides. Mm -hmm. And we're left with that point of we don't necessarily want to get better, but we know that if we don't do something, we're going to die. Yeah. 
and not in a pleasant, peaceful, yeah. in your sleep kind of way. Yeah. It's going to be an epic, public, disastrous mm -hmm. end. Yeah. And so, the rest of this video, they they climb under there. They somebody pets the dog for the first time, and the first time somebody pets this dog, it cries out in pain because it doesn't know what it's like to have somebody love it. It's so scared to be touched by another person that it cries out in pain. And like, that was me coming into the rooms. You know, I was so scared of other people. I didn't want to be hugged. I was uncomfortable. I, I didn't trust anyone. And the rest of the video, they take this dog out, they, they get it back to, uh, you know, a facility and they shave all its hair off and they bathe it and they start nursing it back to health. And, you know, the video runs for another three or four minutes as it shows this dog slowly start to like eat food and wag its tail and then lick the, it shows the first time it licks somebody's hand. You know, it's just like this amazing progression of this dog being nursed back to health. And like, I understood that that was the process that I was now in and I had surrendered to let some other people help me. And that was the people in the rooms. And I think it's a good analogy, at least for me, is from what I've seen with people that are in active addiction, there's almost a, there's a very primal or animalistic mm -hmm. aspect to it. And the science behind addiction tells us that addiction plays upon the most primal instincts that we have mm -hmm. the survival mode mm -hmm. and when we're in active addiction be it alcoholism or drugs or whatever it may be we at some point in time stop using because it's entertaining or fun we mm -hmm. stop use or we start using to survive mm -hmm. to and feel normal to feel yeah. normal it wasn't any longer to feel high it was to feel normal mm -hmm. and the frightening part about it is is we had to use more and more and more just to get that baseline normal mm -hmm. and the baseline normal lasted a shorter and shorter, shorter period, period of time, time. Mm -hmm. but i think the the wild animal analogy relative to addiction is that while we're out there in the throes of our addiction we very much are in that that survival instinct mm -hmm. mode yeah and you know what i realized from from watching that video is that you know this dog had given up and allowed something or someone else to love it and care for it um and that was the beginning of this dog's transformation the beginning of this dog's return to health and uh sanity you know and at about similar to yours with the the video you know me, the people that are out there listening don't necessarily, but the chances of me being in my car and listening to gospel music on a regular day are slim to none. But having grown up in the Southern Baptist Church, there are certain songs that just become part of your ingrained memory, and Amazing Grace was one of them. Mm -hmm. And the words to Amazing Grace were, I was once blind and now I see. And I kind of got that, and I assumed when I was younger that that was a representation of how you know jesus had touched people and healed them in some way but at about three months sober i was sitting in a parking lot and i was still at that point in time wearing some wonderful jewelry that had been provided to me by the judicial system being a house arrest bracelet and a scram bracelet but i remember sitting in that parking lot and it was an april day and it was beautiful outside 
And the, re- the words to that song came back to me, was once blind, but now I see. And to go back to what we were talking about earlier, to where we saw the world as pure negativity, mm-hmm. I began to realize that in my active recovery, I could see good in everything. Mm-hmm. I was beginning to have the ability to see the good even in bad situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like even at that three-month point, I was beginning to see some some blessing associated with my multiple DUIs. I was beginning to see some blessing with my disbarment from the practice of law. I was beginning to see good in other people. And it was shocking to me. Mm-hmm. And it was the notion of when I was in active addiction, I was blind. It wasn't that those things didn't exist. Mm -hmm. It was that I couldn't see them. Mm -hmm. And that coming into the rooms had allowed those blinders to be lifted. And I was slowly but surely... It's kind of like coming from a dark room into the light. It took a while for my eyes to adjust. But the more that my eyes began to adjust, the more clearly it it began to appear to me. But one question that I know I get asked quite a bit is how do you come to believe because this the the step says mm-hmm. came to believe in a ha- power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity could restore and, us to sanity you know i i think that the path to coming to believe is one that goes between mind and heart and it, it's not necessarily the easiest path to travel um but for me what it started as is I went to a lot of meetings. I listened to a lot of people speak and those people that spoke in a way that touched me about their higher power and about the way that they perceived their spirituality and their practices. I had to go seek those people out. Like I I ran up to them after the meeting and I was like, Hey, what you said tonight, I want to ask you questions about that, you know? And I started really just kind of pulling people to the side and having those conversations with them like what is your higher power how do you think about it how do you converse with it how do you listen to it you know all of those things and i sat down with so many people over because it probably took me six months to work my first second step you Mm -hmm. know um and i had to sit down with a lot of other people and get input from a lot of other places because i'm one of those people now that when i came into the rooms i was very uh closed minded to any type of organized religion speak and it you know it always one of the things that always pissed me off about the rooms at 12 steps was they were like you know hey you can your higher power can be anything now let's circle up and say the lord's prayer it was right out of the bible and so that mm-hmm. always rubbed me the wrong way you know i would sometimes i would leave meetings early when they started in with our father who art in heaven you know um but what i had to do was open my mind and i had to i had to stop looking at the negativity that i associated with uh, organized religion and, and take some of the good things, you know. And very similar to you, when I came into the 12-step rooms in the onset, very much like you, there appeared almost a hypocrisy mm-hmm. that this is, that your God can be anything that you want it mm-hmm. to be. But let's do the serenity prayer. I had done the serenity prayer when I was a kid, and let's do the Lord's Prayer. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, you're telling me this isn't a judeo-christian god-centric yeah. program but we're using those yeah. those references mm-hmm. but along my journey i began to realize that there is a distinct difference 
Because I, I, like you, was very opposed to organized religion. Mm-hmm. And still to this day, in yeah. 100% yeah. candor, yeah. sitting at this table yeah. doing this podcast, I don't consider myself to be a religious person. Yeah. But I had to come to the realization that religion is the relationship that people have with their church. Mm-hmm. Spirituality is the relationship that people have with their God or their higher mm-hmm. power. Or their own spirit. Or their own spirit. Mm-hmm. And I am. I know that it is possible for people to be both religious and spiritual because I have seen it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I also know that it is possible to be religious and not spiritual mm-hmm. and spiritual and not religious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And for me, at least my perspective on it, if you have to pick one or the other, spirituality is the essential mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. It's the ability to connect with the universe, my ability to connect with nature, my ability to connect with myself, because spirituality for me is the awareness that I'm not the biggest thing in the universe. Mm-hmm. Thank God. Yeah, and and it's also a, a a matter of knowing that not only am I uh, not the biggest thing in the universe, but I am born of the universe itself. Like, you know... Human beings are naturally occurring phenomenon on this planet. We are just as much a part of this earth and this universe as a tree or a pond or, you know what I mean? Like, like this is the type of world from which humans come. Mm. Um, and the more that I realize that uh, I have a right to be here, like human beings are the only animal that, that try to separate themselves from nature. We're the only ones that try to distance ourselves from the natural environment that we are born into. Um, I'm not sure why that is. Uh, we also have a much larger brain than everybody else on this planet, which can be a blessing and a curse. Well, that's what I was going to say. Is I think one of the, at least scientifically and philosophically throughout the years, things that I've read that what distinguishes man from animal or man from beast if you will is our ability to reason Mm -hmm. now our ability to reason is both a blessing and a curse and and i've also heard it argued that the thing that differentiates us is our ability to understand that our lives are finite Mm. um and that uh that at some point we will die right uh and i think that to a certain extent animals understand that some too, but I don't think that they go through their lives fearing it as much as human beings do. Um, and that's an interesting perspective mm-hmm. that we are the only creature that, based upon our intellect or our ability to reason, recognize the that our end is is imminent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I've used the phrase that we, as alcoholics and addicts, we have the uncanny ability. To complicate the simplistic and mm. to simplify the complex. Mm, yeah. That I'm capable of simplifying something as complex as my addiction. You know, I just had a bit of a drinking problem. I just party a little bit too hard. Yeah. People that have a bit of a drinking problem and party too hard don't end up in jail. They don't end up getting disbarred. They don't destroy their entire world yeah. and their career. Yeah. But that's how I saw it. Mm-hmm. And then I have the ability to complicate something as simplistic as a 12-step program. Mm-hmm. The 12 steps themselves have 200 words. That's all. Yeah. And only one of those words refers to a substance. Mm-hmm. Yet, we over, I 
And many of the people that I've come in contact with have the ability to overthink that. And that is personified as much in anything as it is in step two and three, Mm -hmm. the spirituality concepts. Mm -hmm. So, bold, blunt question to the point. Is the 12-step program, regardless of what fellowship, is it a religious program or or what in your perspective? No, it's, it's not a religious program. To me, it is a spiritual pathway for dealing with any problem that might arise in my life. Not just, um, not just addiction. Because I can put the 12 steps on almost any conundrum that pops up into my life you know the the first thing is hey is there a problem yes the second thing is well do i believe that the problem can be solved the third part is am i gonna am i gonna get help with this problem or am i gonna try to do this alone all right well let's look at my part in this problem let's you know what i mean and and the steps kind of are a flow chart for uh a way to untie the laces of almost any problem in life it may not solve every problem but it will move me in the direction of solving that problem in an easier fashion and one thing that i've noticed and it's stealing from an einstein quote is is paraphrasing that he said if he had five minutes to answer a question he would spend four minutes focusing on the question and one minute focusing on the solution Mm -hmm. the steps for me particularly the first five steps have helped me to understand the questions that are in life like why am i in this situation why is this situation happening because i've had to own my part in it because up until i came into the rooms if anything good happened to me it was because of my hard work my diligence and my talent i if i'd got something good in my life i did it but if something bad happened to me i was a victim of the universe mm-hmm. But my life began to change when I changed the question of why is this happening to me and I began to become a student and say, why is this happening for me? Because the why is it happening to me, I'm a victim. The why is it happening for me, I become a student of this life. But the spirituality aspects of this play into self-awareness, mm-hmm. plays into humility, mm-hmm. it plays into acceptance. Yep. And it was a struggle. I I mean, and when I hear people that are opposed to the spiritual and religious overtones, I can completely relate to what they're going through. And in your position, where you are, I was going to say, you have a unique perspective on that. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of times I I encounter guys uh, in early recovery that are struggling with step two and three a lot of times. And it's one of the things that I struggled with so much in my recovery that I feel like I'm I'm uniquely qualified to kind of help talk them through, you know. And I generally start with like, you know, what are your beliefs? What do you believe in and what do you not believe in? Because we need to identify those things. And then it's a matter of like looking at um, what do I have evidence for and what do I not have evidence for? in my life you know and as I look back over my life I had evidence for uh continuing to survive I had evidence for things happening even when I didn't understand why or how those things happened you know um I I basically had to boil things down really simple to myself and and look at it from the terms of uh 
light and dark, black and white, right and wrong, right? So, so if I boil down every decision that I make in this world, I can boil it down to being based in one of two things, either fear or love. If I'm making a decision that's based in fear, it's because I am afraid I will lose something. I'm afraid I won't have enough of something. I am afraid that things won't turn out my way. There, there is something that I am either fearful of losing or fearful of being cut off from, right? Whenever I make a decision that is based in love, I'm making a decision that is based in connection. I'm making a decision that is based in openness. I'm making a decision that is based in uh, showing or giving to someone else, right? Or showing or giving something to myself. Um, so I, I had to boil down these things and, and kind of look at it from a, from a very basic perspective of, am I choosing to live a life that's based in fear or am I choosing to live a life that's based in love, you know, and love and fear don't have a religion. Love and fear don't have a dogma. They just are right. And, you know, I think Yoda put it best, man, fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to the dark side. You know, the thing that he didn't mention is that it also works in the other way. It's like love leads to joy. Joy leads to peace. Peace leads to freedom and happiness, right? So if we, if we can look at our decisions from that middle ground before I make a decision and start to ask myself, am I making this decision because I'm afraid I'll lose something or am I making this decision because... I want to show love and be loving in this situation, you know. And And I like that. I mean, the the concept that, again, if we only look at it from the negative, that hate leads to anger and Mm -hmm. anger and Mm -hmm. all of that. But if we start looking at it from the other perspective, and that's something that I truly believe in, is that not picking up the drink or the drug is the easiest Mm -hmm. part of a recovery program. Feeling the feelings is the hard part. Feeling the feelings. And it's the little decisions that we make, which are why we, which is why we say a, a strong recovery program, a healthy recovery is based upon something as simple as the next right decision. Mm -hmm. That's all one decision at a time, the next right decision. And that could be as simple as, you know, do I hit the snooze button one more time? Mm -hmm. Do I make my bed this morning? Do I, you know, do some self-care and get a massage today or whatever else it is. I mean, there's a lot. Do I go to a meeting on the day that I really don't want to go? And it's the next right decision that plays into it and how it builds from a place of darkness and hopelessness mm-hmm. to a place of light and hopefulness, a bit lighter. And for me, the chase for spirituality was very much like the butterfly analogy that as long as I focused on catching spirituality, I never seemed to get it. Mm -hmm. But when I stopped focusing on being a spiritual person and just started being a good person, Mm -hmm. doing the next right decision, holding the door for someone, if someone needed a ride to a meeting, taking them to a meeting, I began to feel that, that spiritual presence in my life. And I've had multiple, quote unquote, spiritual moments in my own personal recovery where I've seen it, but part of it was me stopping chasing the definition of spirituality and starting to feel mm-hmm. what that was yeah. is spirituality for me is less of a word than it is a feeling mm-hmm. it's a connection that I have because 
when I was in active addiction, I didn't really feel connected to the world. And today in recovery, I do have that connection or I feel that way. You know, for me, I think I started the, the, the journey of coming to believe in something different by really just trying to listen to my heart. Like my mind as an addict generally drives me in the wrong direction. Like I know the difference between right and wrong, but my mind generally stares me, steers me to the wrong conclusion or the wrong action. But when I listen to my heart about what's right or wrong, what do I feel? Like that's when I started like moving in the right direction. And that's what I mean about the journey between mind and heart. When I'm thinking about a situation of I'm going to help this person, but in the back of my mind, I'm saying I'm going to help this person so that later on they'll be indebted to me or mm, later on right. they're going to show me love because I did this. Right? It's the, it's the notion of, and, and I can relate to that a hundred percent. I donated money to charity. I gave things to people, mm-hmm. but it was all about, Basically, I was was making an investment in a future get-out-of-jail-free card. Anytime I did anything nice for my wife or others, Mm -hmm. it was so that I knew one day I was going to screw up, but this might help me Mm -hmm. limit those consequences. Yeah. And for me, the the whole idea of spirituality is a one-on-one connection with, with my spirit. You know, and what I've learned about the 12 steps is that the 12, when I get here, I'm, we're all kind of conduits, right? As a human being, I, I, I put things into my body. I eat, I, you know, I'm like a, I'm like a battery, right? And so I put things into my body. I'm like a conduit. Things come into me, things flow out of me. And it's, it's energy is what I think about. But when I got here, my conduit was very small and it was very clogged up. It was clogged up with all the self-loathing. It was clogged up with the resentments. It was clogged up with all of these things. And so what the steps have done is they've they've taken those resentments out of the conduit. They've taken those fears out of the conduit. And they've allowed the energy of this world, which I like to call love, to flow through, right? And as I've worked steps and as I kept coming back, that conduit gets bigger. And so as a conduit gets bigger, it can more energy and love and those kinds of things can flow through it and so what i've learned you know in recovery and through my spirituality is that all of this is connected right we as human beings like to reason our connection away we like to look at things and say oh that's not me i don't i don't like that and so therefore that's not a part of me the the thing is that all of this is connected. Everything I see in my life is a part of my world, is a part of me, and is therefore a reflection of who I am in the world I live in. And so as I work these steps and I become more self-aware, as I become a larger, more clear conduit through which the life and love and energy of this world can flow, I can touch more people with that. I can help more people with it. So you know, love breeds love, hope yeah. breeds hope. Yeah. The more that we give, the more that we receive. And I that goes back to the 12-step concept mm-hmm. and step 12, yeah. that to keep what we have, we you have to, to give, give it away. It away. Yeah. But what I've learned is when I give things away, I don't just get to keep them. It grows. Yeah. I mean, my, my it's completely contrary to a bank account. In a bank account, when I spend money, my balance gets smaller. Yeah. But in recovery, when I help other people, my bank account, my spiritual bank account, mm-hmm. my well-being grows. Now, the only way I, to never lose something is to give it away. And that's a that's profound it. quote. Yeah. Sort of coming up on the end of this, I do want to touch upon one question that sure. I've had asked a hundred times over, and a hundred is 
not even close to how many times it's been asked. What do you pray to if you don't believe in anything? How do you pray in early recovery? Because <laughs> and it's very, yeah. you'll hear your sponsors, yeah. you'll hear members of the 12-step community talk about how important prayer is. And mm-hmm. I remember being told I needed to pray and me not knowing what I was supposed to pray mm-hmm. to. Or, so how, how, or how to or pray. Or how to yeah. pray. I mean, I knew the serenity prayer. I knew the Lord's prayer. Yeah. And to be honest with you, I had grown up in Southern Baptist Church, so I believed that my prayers needed to be these almost these Latin dirges, yeah. these big mm-hmm. grandiose yeah. ple- yeah. pleas to God. Yeah. So what is and, what is and, prayer? What's the essential and, aspect and of it for you? I'll tell you this, man. In, in my early recovery, they told me to pray. I didn't know anything about praying. I didn't know what I was praying to. I had no idea. And so I prayed to please and thank you. That was it. It was, it was as simple as when I woke up in the morning, it was please keep me clean today. Please guide me. Please show me what to do. And I almost, I mean, it was almost tearful begging at that point because I was so afraid of relapse. Like I'm one of those people that got clean in the same house that I used to sell drugs out of. I'm one of those people that got clean in the same neighborhood I grew up in where, you know, I knew everybody. Um, And so in the beginning, it was simply, please, please, please keep me clean today. And I would almost beg it. Um, And then at night, it was thank you for keeping me clean. It, It was as simple as just making the just taking the action to do it it didn't matter what words i used it didn't matter what uh i i think prayer has so much more to do with feeling than it does the way that you do it and i think you know a big part my understanding of prayer as a younger person i treated god very much like santa claus mm-hmm you know, God, get me a bike. Mm-hmm. God, get me this new relationship. <laughs> yeah, yeah. God, let me have this girl. Mm-hmm. God, get me out of yeah, trouble. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when I didn't see that God gave me the girl or gave me the red bike, mm-hmm. and I got a blue bike, not a red bike. Yeah. That's not what I asked for. I became very ungrateful. And I began to realize that because the, the book and the 12-step reminds us that we need to ask for our higher powers will and not our own and this goes back to what you were talking about with your disease which when you are following your addiction you tend to make the wrong decisions Mm -hmm. because i had to come to the realization that i don't always know what's best for me I think I know what's best for me i think i want this job i think i want this relationship i think i want this but in hindsight, looking back on it, some of the greatest blessings that I've ever been given have been not getting the things that I wanted. Mm-hmm. And again, that plays into the connectivity. But if you could boil it down for a newcomer or for someone that's struggling in this and they don't know what to pray to or how to go about doing it, what's your recommendation or suggestion to them? Ask for help. Hmm. That's it. That's, that's the basis of humility. The basis of humbling myself in a 12-step program is asking for help. That was the one thing that I could not do in active addiction was ask for help. And I mean the type of help that we actually need. See, I was very good at asking for money and asking mm-hmm. for yeah, yeah, yeah. somebody to, to you know, I was good for it. Could they hook me up just mm-hmm. this one time and I'd catch them next week or next paycheck? Mm-hmm. 
I was good with that self-serving help, but mm-hmm. I was never good at asking for the vulnerable help, the help of things that I really needed. I was good at asking for people to help me perpetuate my problem, but not to find a solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think our world is built like that. Is our We're surrounded every day with things that can help perpetuate our addiction to substances or to things or to buying or to whatever but when it comes down to actually helping us with the root understanding reconnecting us with the universe with ourselves those are the things that we've been taught that it's not okay to ask for help for i mean and again this kind of bridges into the subject of toxic masculinity men are taught that asking for help is a sign of weakness Weakness, yeah well the great thing about the concept of spirituality and also the frustrating thing about the concept of spirituality is it's not a conversation that will be had in an hour. It's not a conversation that there's ever going to be an answer to. What we begin to realize, or at least what I began to realize in my journey, is that my higher power doesn't have to look like your higher power. But as we come to the end of this podcast and into this session if i can give any suggestion to the people that are listening keep an open mind mm. be willing there's a phrase that is often uttered in the in the 12 step rooms that say don't quit before the miracle happens and what so few of us realize is that we are right on the cusp of a life changing emotionally changing event and in that moment, our enemy is hitting us as hard as it can possibly hitting a, hit us to make us turn away. But if we can ride it out one more hour, one more day, one more meeting, one more minute, we may be able to see an incomparable joy, a change that takes place in our life, the beginning of growth. So, as I say... If I can give you any one suggestion, maintain an open mind. Realize that just because you believe adamantly in what you believe, it doesn't mean that you're right or that you're wrong. And just because somebody believes differently than you do doesn't mean they're right or they're wrong. We have the absolute right to question our own beliefs, but we don't have the right to question someone else's. Because at the end of the day... We're all in this journey together, and we have to collectively try and help each other. Now, Chad, I know besides being in recovery, besides being in the field, we're, we're more than addicts, and we're more mm-hmm. than alcoholics, yeah. and we're more than recovery advocates. You've got life and interest outside of this. Oh, yeah. What definitely. do you do outside of so, saving other people's lives? <laughs> so I'm an, I'm an abstract artist. It's, uh, it's been a hobby of mine since I was probably in my early 20s. Um, but I'm a different kind of abstract artist. I consider myself to be a photographic digital abstract artist. Um, I started taking pictures when I was a kid. My dad was a hobbyist photographer, and every now and then he would give me the camera and let me take a couple of shots. So these were back in the days of film and f-stop and all that stuff. And so I started playing with photography then. And then as the first digital cameras came out, I was amazed because I was like, oh, wow, I can take all the pictures I want. I don't have to pay for film processing. I don't have to buy film. And I really didn't have to know anything other than point the camera at something and press the button. And then I would take the pictures from the camera, put it in a computer, and start to play with them. 
and I had no idea what I was doing. I just got in there and started pushing buttons. And so when I started doing this, it was like the first Photoshop uh, program. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of have, have continued to do this for, gosh, almost 20 years now. And I've just built upon it. And now I run a business out of my house. It's called Pixelate Art, pixelateart.com. And it's spelled funny. It's P-I-X-E-L-E-I-G-H-T-A-R-T.com. Uh, the word pixel, the number eight spelled out, and then art. But uh, So now I make these big pieces of abstract artwork for hotels, hospitals, uh, uh, interior design projects all over Nashville. And I've got art in different cities too. But uh, that's my passion, man. I One of the things that I lost the ability to do in my active addiction was put my feelings into words. I couldn't tell people how I felt, but I could make a picture that would convey it. And I think what is fascinating about working and living and thriving in the recovery community Mm -hmm. is that this disease doesn't care about race, creed, color, sexual preference, your occupation. Mm Because we're surrounded every day in the recovery world by people from every walk of life. Mm -hmm. The one thing in common that we all have is that there's an element of pain that was provided to us that we could no longer tolerate. Mm -hmm. But one of the most one of the most valuable things that I see every day, which renews my hope in the program, renews my hope in my own personal recovery, is the redemptive power Mm -hmm. that. For me, a guy that is a felon, that's a disbarred lawyer, has the opportunity now to do things that he loves. You, mm-hmm. a felon who <laughs> was looking at a vast majority of your life in jail, yeah. now gets the opportunity to make beautiful art, and people actually pay you for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a passion of yours mm-hmm. that you would do for free, but you make money doing Mm -hmm. it oh i did it for free for a long time now i sell it (laughs) (laughs) well thank you guys for tuning in and listening to forest fires the exercise in putting together forest fires is a pleasure to do but it's also something that i believe can be valuable to other people because what we learn in this program is that our darkest the darkest parts of our past can become something valuable to help other people so if you're out there listening today and you're struggling with addiction, you're struggling with your own thoughts, you're struggling with your own recovery. The best thing that you can possibly do is to reach out to another alcoholic or addict or somebody in the recovery community and do just as Chad said. Do the thing that seems completely counterintuitive. Ask for help. Mm -hmm. Hope is contagious. Hope is real. And when we share that with other people, we all can catch it. Again, thank you for tuning in.